0: So hello there and welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. My name is Adam Burns, your host for this podcast, and joining me on this episode once again is my co-host, Mr. Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you this weekend? Are you doing okay?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, Just getting over and digesting. Yet another eventful race, Adam.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we said last week that... The um, Tuscan Grand Prix, because I'm not going to pronounce the actual official name because that's just way too long a hashtag to put in. But the race in Magello, we expected a complete contrast to what we got in Monza and that was an absolutely mental race. And in fairness, this one was as well, but for completely different reasons to some degree. So I think first things first, we have to obviously pick this apart and go into the finer details, but the uh, headline from the race was Lewis Hamilton winning in the uh, Tuscan Grand Prix at Mugello. His 90th race victory of his career now, putting him one more win behind the illustrious record so set, close. So close so down, so close. set by Michael Schumacher. And uh, considering seven years ago, when uh, before the turbo hybrid era started and Lewis was finding his feet at Mercedes, winning his first race for the team at Hungary, I think it's fair to say that none of us expected... Where Lewis would be seven years from now, obviously, since then he's won six world cha- Well, five world championships. I get ahead of myself now, um, <laughs> almost saying six there. I mean, technically, it's not over, he's 55 points ahead now of Valtteri Bottas. Although, in I, fairness, I think. I think you and I would probably agree that Lewis is it's his championship to lose at this point, but I don't think we'd have predicted that Lewis would have been on this monumental rise, winning five of the next uh, seven World Championships since he's joined Mercedes and several race victories after that. I think it was, uh, I think he's nearly won 70 Grand Prix with them. Something along those lines. I might be wrong. I'd have to check the actual numbers, but um, I think he's now at the point where he's almost won, if he hasn't already won the most Grand Prix for a single team in Formula One. I mean, that might be still Schumachers. I'd have to check that as well. But Courtney, I think in... How would you be able to summarise this incredible display over the last seven years from Lewis Hamilton? Could you have foreseen it back then, that he would be literally on the verge of equalling Schumacher's race victories record and, of course, his World Championships record, as well as beating several others as well?
1: Now, you know Adam more than anybody, I've always been a massive fan of um, Lewis's from the start of his um, F1 career. But not even I would have expected him to come as far as he has um in terms of not only his innate ability which I do I I do feel that with his ability he has always been the best of his generation I've always been a firm believer in that from you know from the Vettel era shall we say I've always been a firm believer that Lewis has been the best of that generation but there were Every season, almost, you're just thinking, you know, next season, Red Bull going to catch Mercedes. Next year, next season, Ferrari going to catch Mercedes. And it's never materialised. Mercedes, and Lewis in particular, have always found a way to take that next step forward. They've always relished a challenge. There's been new challenges every season with changes in regulations to try and slow Mercedes down. But in a way, it's actually given them something new to work for, which is why there's been such a sustained dominance by Mercedes and Lewis. And, yeah, without getting carried away this season, because things can go pear-shaped very quickly in this sport, as we all know, I, I'm, I'm just looking at, the, at these stats, and even as a fan, I, I sometimes take a step back and
0: I'm in like sheer disbelief of what this man is achieving. Yeah, I mean, the sheer awe of it, considering what Lewis and Mercedes have achieved over the last seven years, is nothing short of monumental. I mean, as I said, seven years ago, Lewis Hamilton was winning his first race for Mercedes at the Hungarian Grand Prix. And this was at a time where we always saw the potential for Mercedes to get race wins and perhaps challenge for World Championships. They were always trying to battle for it ever since Nico Rosberg got the first win for the team back in uh, 2012 at the uh, Chinese Grand Prix. It was their first victory since their return to the sport. And... Since then, they've been on this meteoric rise in the sport. They acquired Lewis Hamilton from McLaren, back at a time where McLaren arguably had the best car on the grid after winning the yeah. final race of the season with Jenson Button, and then it took a huge nosedive um, in 2013. It didn't really work out, and then, of course, we had the rule changes in 2014. We entered the turbo-hybrid era, and since then, they've completely dominated it from... And they've gone from strength to strength, and they've never really looked back, and Lewis has really... Uh, capitalised on this, is really um, shown, or highlighted I suppose, how dominant they have been especially in these hands, it's been the perfect combination as I said, we've seen some famous com- combinations in the past the likes of Schumacher at Ferrari obviously Vettel at, had a time at Red Bull, Senna in the McLaren um, and obviously Williams with several drivers being successful there in the early 90s as well it's those levels of dominance where you sort of wonder how long they can keep it going. That's always been the question. When is the next competitive fight? Where is it going to come from? And every single year, not only do Mercedes seem to rise to the challenge, but they also push the ceiling and break the limits that many in in the sport couldn't believe was possible. They keep doing it time and time and time again. I think this season in particular has been the real surprise of how they've been able to shatter that ceiling of performance and find more performance than other teams have had. You almost think the teams would be closing up to them. They've reached the limit and teams are trying to close up to them, but it's been the opposite. Mercedes have stretched their advantage further and Lewis has constantly found new ways to improve his own drive and it's culminated in this unprecedented period of dominance that we're seeing from him right now.
1: But I feel that the race that's occurred in particular, I, I just feel that it highlights how exceptional Lewis is again within this generation because he's he's won races in many different ways i know having the best car does help but he's won in wet races he's won he's won races in a past where he shouldn't have done actually particularly in these mclaren days but even a race like today where i know he's only coming against his teammate but let's not forget adam that belchie bottas Okay, given his standard, he has generally been below Lewis, but he took a step up this weekend. His fast-fart practice sessions He's very close to getting pole position, was Valtteri, and he did overtake Lewis at the start. But given the circumstances of the race, which I'm sure we'll go into with the with the red flag standing starts, Lewis overtook Valtteri from second at the first restart but was able to defend the the, uh, secondary start from first. And I just thought he was able to display various strengths of his throughout that race.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point to make. And um, it's been the tale of this season. The fact that I agree with you with Valtteri Bottas. He finally started to show signs that he was ready to take the fight to Lewis. But it's a case of too little too late. And... When the scenario came up where Valtteri had the opportunity at the third restart, or was it, was it third rest- yeah, at the third restart to um, overtake Lewis on that side of the grid, which seemed the more favourable option, it just never really manifested for him. He never really was able to do it. He never delivered on it, and if anything, he was overtaken by Ricardo in the Renault. So it really epitomised what th- this this golf, I suppose, between the two drivers, and How Lewis has completely left Valtteri in the dust, despite Valtteri being a bit more assertive today. It just, it just seemed the same old story, and that Lewis had him covered off. But of course, we've got to get into the race before we go more on that. So, of course, the first race for F One in Mugello, officially uh, in the region of Tuscany in Italy, a complete contrast as we mentioned before to the Italian Grand Prix in Monza, where we saw Pierre Gasly finally come back down to earth i believe is probably fair to say after with a bang with a bang indeed after winning yeah. his maiden victory in formula 1 for the alpha tauri team and um obviously it was a very good start for valtteri bottas He got away very very well indeed was able to overtake lewis hamilton to go into the lead of the race and at that point i looked at it and thought yeah, it looks like Valtteri may get have his day today. This was the sort of yep. result he needed and result sort of result he would need to achieve and get in front of Lewis early on because it seemed like the characteristics of the track would render this kind of... Uh, if Valtteri was going to win the race, it would render for him to have to overtake Lewis at the earliest opportunity to get it done. And he did that. But then the chaos that ensued behind really threw a lot of curveballs and caveats into this race. And obviously the first of which... Was the huge incident that took place at turn two, where uh, Pierre Gasly, Kimi Raikkonen, and Roman Grosjean, three cars going into uh, turn three and all sandwiching one another, and ended up causing a massive collision which took out quite a few cars, including Max Verstappen. And uh, unfortunately, yeah. Like that. Sorry, that's another moment that we need to
1: note that despite Mercedes' dominance, it's it's always been felt that the main threat to Mercedes has been Max Verstappen. Now, I had a look at the driver championship. I could be wrong, but I'm going to stand by this. I believe that Lewis,
0: 80 point clear of Max Verstappen. Uh, I think you're right. I'm just having a look myself. Yes, yeah, you're right. So, I mean, it, it's such a shame because... We do hope that Max is the guy that's going to be able to throw a spanner in the works and really make a race of this. I think F1 fans collectively have depended on Max being able to do that. Unfortunately, today, he didn't get a bad initial getaway. He was alongside Hamilton to overtake him, but then he had issues with his engine, of course, before the start of the race. His mechanics were working frantically on the car to try and fix an issue with the engine. Fortunately, they were able to get it started, but... There seemed to be, apparently, uh, from what I heard afterwards, there was a sense of issue which caused the car to go into a sort of, not an anti-storm mode, but like a safe mode where it really bogged him down in terms of performance when he needed it most and he got completely gazumped by so many cars and then was an unfortunate uh, passenger in an accident where three cars behind him were all trying to jockey for the same piece of track and um, ended up being knocked off the road into the gravel trap and that was his race over very, very unfortunate for Max Verstappen, as you can see, very, very frustrated, all none of his own doing, and was taken out at the beginning of the race. How did you see that incident, corner? Because a lot of people felt that um, there was a combination of a few things, but a lot of people seem to think that Pierre Gasly, the race winner uh, from last week, was the main antagonist in this incident. For me, I kind of looked at it as uh, Gasly kind of put his car into a position where he was always going to be at risk of being hit or being sandwiched, perhaps he should have backed off. And then, of course, Raikkonen just managed to control his car, but ended up veering to the right and Grosjean on the left. It it was always going to end in tears. How did you see that incident?
1: Um, I feel that that particular incident was um, was the result of this track being used for the very first, well, very long time, or even the first time for these um, Formula One drivers. Because if you think about it, when these drivers go to the same circuits year in, year out, you know, as you say, your Spars, your Monzas, your Silverstones, etc. Um, you, they tend to have a vague idea of which lines are best, you know, your breaking points, optimum lines, given the car you have. They have, a, they tend to have a, a good idea, given that they go there every single season. They've come to a new track, let's say, where there's plenty of twists and turns, and I just feel that they were trying out new lines, and I think one or two drivers, including Pierre Gazzi, got a little bit overconfident with that, and that's what resulted in that first crash.
0: Quite possibly. It's a very narrow track, and a very much a track that relies on the car to be flown, so there's not really too many different lines you can take. I mean, traditionally, it's a MotoGP circuit, and uh, it has been used in the past by Formula One teams. I think it used to be a testing circuit in mid-season. I think around about 2012, I think it was, it was used during the uh, mid-season, when they were conducting F1 tests at that time, uh, so some of the drivers like Hamilton, uh, Grosjean, Raikkonen, Vettel would have had experience there in the past. Some of the older drivers in the field, whereas other drivers, as you mentioned, would not have had that luxury. I mean, Charles Leclerc had done a few runs there, so and he'd also raced in Formula Four in uh, at that race, and so did Lando Norris as well, also raced in Formula 4. So he was familiar with that circuit. It's not traditionally a Formula 1 circuit. Of course, we had incredible races in the F3 series and F2 series. And of course, uh, we were hoping for something similar to Formula 1. We were never going to get that kind of race. And I think probably a good opportunity to congratulate Oscar Piastri, who won the Formula 3 championship today for the Prima team, the uh, young driver who is uh, part of the Renault Drivers Academy. So he will definitely be a driver to look out for, the young Australian, mentored by Mark Webber, of course, former Formula One driver. And uh, yeah, it was a great day for him and a great day for the Prima team, Italian base as well, to win the championship on their own patch. He's definitely a, a name to remember and to look out for in the future. So I'm sure he will most likely get promoted into the F2 series, perhaps with the Prima team as well, depending on what happens there with the likes of Mick Schumacher as well. So that's definitely one to keep an eye out for. But that kind of track, it's not one that you would expect tight racing in Formula 1. It's not built for that purpose. It was built originally as a test track and as a MotoGP circuit as well, where it's often there. And as you mentioned before, you see Formula 1 cars going closely together. It was always going to end in tears. and It was one of those incidents where... Max Verstappen was trying to be conservative when he got bogged down. And unfortunately, he was tagged and taken out of the race by a couple of drivers who were trying to be over-aggressive at the start. It was one of those tracks, perhaps, because of its nature, people were trying to make up as many places as possible off the start because they felt that if they got held back, they would struggle to make up places during the race. So, so many different ways that you can look at it. But of course, we fast forward to that safety car that came out in response to that. And then this is when the chaos started to ensue with the safety car restart. We were about uh, nine laps in, I think it was, when the safety car was coming into the pit lane and the back straight is over a kilometre long and it was a massive headwind. So slipstreaming and DRS were going to be even more overpowered, or OP if you like, than they would normally be. And what happened, for those of you that didn't see it, was Valtteri Bottas weaving as you would expect normally and going slowly but not going too fast or too slow but mm. was waiting to the last possible moment to get going now the rule is with the safety car is once the race gets underway you cannot overtake until you cross the start finish line which Valtteri left as late as possible to defend from his teammate which seemed I'm a sensible sorry. thing to do and it was the same thing that was done in F3 and F2 when the same situation Yeah. and what happened was the Constantina effect caused the guys at the back to someone to try and make a jump forward, which I believe it was uh, Nicholas Latifi and Antonio Giovinazzi, and because you had cars in front that were going slowly and they were going fast, it called a massive collision, which took out, I think, around six or six cars, I believe, five or six cars. Yeah, it
1: was, it was um, six.
0: Yes, it was. I think it was six at the first red flag, I believe, yeah. Yes, uh, I, th- I think it was uh, obviously Latifi, Giovinazzi, Magnussen, Signs. Um, and I think it, actually, I think it was just those four because Esteban Ocon went out a bit later, but it caused a huge crash, um, and of course that caused the first red flag. Now, I've got to ask Courtney. Uh, I mean, we were sort of going in and out of what how we felt about that incident. But how did you see that incident? Who do you, do you think Valtteri uh, was to blame for that, for slowing the pack down too much, or did you feel that he did everything right and perhaps it was caused in the midfield? Where where was your stance on that incident?
1: I feel that it was an unfortunate accident, to be honest, because I feel that valtry was doing like right, was doing the right thing. He's protecting his lead. He he complied with the rules. I just feel there was almost like a miscommunication because you know they can't. If you're at the back, you know, like Slatyfe, you can't see what's going on when you've got like what ten, twelve cards in front of you between yourself and valtry You can't see what's going on. And all they, saw, all they saw was a green light. So, you got, you got to imagine, I know these guys are supposed to be the, the pinnacle of their sport, but you got to imagine the level of adrenaline these guys have got driving these cars. They've seen a the green light, and I just feel that, and have an instinct where they want to win. These guys, doesn't matter if they're at the top or the bottom, they all have such a hunger to win. You put that together with adrenaline, you see a green light, you're going to go, aren't you? Yeah, no absolutely. Feel, yeah, that's the thing, and I feel there was. I just feel there's a miscommunication almost with the dash light, and I think Carlos Sainz touched on it. I think it's something they need to look into because they can't, they physically can't see what's going on ten cars ahead of them. So it was a miscommunication. So I don't, I don't blame a particular driver, but I do understand the anger from the driver involved because that could have been really nasty.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, for those of you that are hearing a little bit of background noise, I do apologise for that. And also hearing me try to clear my throat. I've been shaking off the remnants of a cough lately, so it's caused me to have to clear my throat a little bit every so often. So I do apologise about that if you are picking any of that up on the podcast. But I absolutely agree, Courtney. I think the nature of the circuit, as I said, as we said before, that it warrants drivers to try and take every opportunity that they can to get overtakes done as and when they can do it, because it's not an easy track to make overtakes on with the exception of turn one. And what we saw was a situation where Valtteri Bottas was, he was weaving to keep the tyres warm, of course, but that's absolutely fine. He wasn't going fast and then slowing down, going fast and then slowing down, which we have seen some drivers do in the past when leading a safety car queue. Um, Lewis talked about the safety car lights going off A bit later than they probably should have done obviously we saw the green flag which is telling the guys behind that it's okay to go racing but I think the one thing that I noticed was a lot of the guys in the midfield were spreading out all over the place trying to find the right piece of track to get onto so they could take advantage and anticipate when Bottas was going to go and that's totally understandable but the fact of the matter is, is that the safety car line So when you can start overtake is the start-finish line. We've gone past the days now where the safety car line is a bit further back, i.e. before the last corner. Perhaps that's something that should be considered in the future for safety. But similar to how Baku works, the drivers behind are always going to get edgy and want to try and get a move on and try and guess when the leader's going to go. And unfortunately, we ended up with a situation where Valtteri did what he had to do, which was in the rules and seemed perfectly fine to do but it always takes one person to go for it and then it prompts everyone else to go but then there are people that aren't doing it and you mistime it and you create an incident like that so it was very dangerous um, the incident itself but I do not lay any of the blame at Valtteri Bottas and I'm certainly glad oh, oh, oh. that the stewards did not feel that way either because it certainly was not his fault I've seen other drivers I've even seen Lewis Hamilton in the past Uh, Not that he mentioned Valtteri Bottas in this instance, but I've seen quite often when he's led the safety car, and Sebastian Vettel as well, they've done this, have gone fast and a bit slower to try and tease people as to when to go. But then they bunch everyone up, and it's almost a little bit more dangerous than you like. But this situation, Valtteri was definitely not doing anything wrong, at least in my opinion, at least. Obviously, feel free to let us know what you guys think as well in the comments section below if you are watching this on YouTube. So, uh, obviously, we're moving on to the next pilot race. We had the red flag, which uh, unfortunately caused us to lose another driver. We lost Esteban Ocon, who had uh, a brake issue. His brakes were completely charred and melted at the rears. And uh, there was a danger that he'd be in a similar situation to Sebastian Vettel at Monza. Now, the brakes weren't going to be used as often or severely round Mugello, usually the slowest gear that you would take. Round days around third, so not really many breaking opportunities, or at least heavy breaking opportunities like you get in Monza. But unfortunately it was unsafe for him to continue and had to retire from the race. But as the race went on, uh, it, it just it started to develop quite nicely, and obviously Charles Leclerc had a great start for Ferrari it, it, getting it, up it, into third place, but then as the race went on Overtake after overtake after overtake. We saw all the hallmarks of where the Ferrari was struggling, not just in a straight line, but also in the corners. I mean, despite how it uh, ended up for him, that must have been a very, very horrible thing for Charles Leclerc and Ferrari to be seeing on what was their 1,000th Grand Prix this weekend.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, if you think, how many cars finished in the end? Wasn't it 12?
0: Yes, 12.
1: It was It was 12 and they finished... Was
0: it... 8th uh, and 10th in the end, yes.
1: <clears throat> you come on. Like I know, again, we've had the conversation many times. But come on, there are 12 cars on the grid. Ferrari, the biggest team in Formula 1 history, finishing 8th and 10th out of 12 cars. That is just not acceptable. It doesn't matter what's going on with the engine or anything like that, that that's simply not acceptable for, for a team
0: of that size. Hmm. It's very, very difficult for Ferrari at the moment. Of course, we're going to talk a bit more about them, as it is their 1000th Grand Prix as a bit of a celebration, but obviously looking at where they need to go moving forward. But it was definitely a difficult race for them, although it, the results were better than they have been in the last couple of weeks. So I suppose it depends on which way you see it, given where they probably feel they should be. It probably wasn't the worst possible result with both of them scoring points in the race. But obviously we go back to the second restart, or the second start of the race, where Valtteri Bottas was leading the way and then it was a standing start and Lewis Hamilton completely got a great getaway and got ahead of him into turn one. And as the race went on, it just felt that Lewis had the race in the bag. Valtteri was trying what he wanted to try and strategy. I mean, he even said to the uh, engineers or, or strategists that whatever... We do at this next stop. Put me on a different set of tyres to Lewis Hamilton. Now, that's quite an audacious call to make when you are like running as the second car. It's a good one from Valtteri. Yeah. I like it because it shows that you know that intent to really attack Lewis, and this is the only way he knows how to do it. Unfortunately for Valtteri, he would not looked after his tyres as well as Lewis had. Now you can say, following the car in front, being a couple of, within a couple of seconds, it's always going to uh, create more heat more turbulent air, it's always going to damage the tyres and add even more load and stress onto them, what was already a very difficult track to manage tyres with the high-speed corners that they had. Valtteri kind of lost that, um, I suppose, the validity of the request when he ended up having to pit first because what happened was is that he pitted onto the harder tyres and when Lewis came in uh, under the safety car, uh, he he went straight onto the harder tyres as well. So I suppose... Mercedes, from what I gathered, they probably felt perhaps they could honour that request for Valtteri, but given he made that stop first, why would they then go out their way to put Lewis on a different strategy and risk compromising his race, when Valtteri hadn't really given them anything to sort of give him preferential treatment?
1: No, it wouldn't have made any sense at all, and I feel that it would have caused <clears throat> would have caused a lot of upset within the team. And there is, however, there is this argument that. Valtteri, this season probably too late, but going forward, Valtteri does need to be rattling Lewis's cage a little bit the way that Nico did. He needs to be looking at Nico Rosberg hmm. as an example because he successfully, successfully done it in 2016 with with it a little bit of engine luck, uh, reliability luck, but he did manage overall to get into Lewis's head. I haven't seen, you haven't really seen Valtteri do that yet no there's an no. added pressure and there is there's an added pressure for Valtteri because he's sometimes so far behind in comparison to Lewis that he needs to start next season strong or he will end up losing his seat altogether so he 's fighting not only for a championship but he's also fighting for his long term future so he needs to try something and do it fast
0: he hasn't been able to sustain. Uh, any sort of level of dominance since his time at Mercedes. He's won the odd race, but he's never really been able to go on a run where he's won a yeah. few races and really put Lewis on the back foot. If anything, Lewis has always seemed to respond immediately to it and then go on a run of his own just to put pay to that. But uh, And it happened once again, obviously, he had that poor getaway and um, obviously as the race unfolded, it seemed likely that we were going to be in a position where Lewis was going to control it. But then, of course, towards the end of the race, Lance Stroll, Uh, Unfortunately, I think it was a rear puncher or something like that on his car that failed at the uh, second Arabiata corner. Very dangerous high-speed incident. Thankfully, Lance is okay. He hit the wall from the side, but that completely ruined his race, and he was on for a very good result himself. So um, very disappointed for him and the Racing Point team to lose out on that, but thankfully, Lance was okay, and he was running an updated Racing point as well. I think someone joked to me saying that they'd done designs of the 2021 Mercedes, that they got some drawings and made up some parts. Uh, sorry, 2020 Mercedes and made some parts on that and put it on the car early rather than wait till 2021. All jokes of their side before they outlaw copying. But um, as I said, it, it was difficult for them, obviously. Lance thankfully was okay, but it was another opportunity he missed really, and otherwise a decent performance from Lance up until that point. It looked very very quick and challenging for the podium, but then of course that brought out the safety car and the second red flag of the race. Now, red flags are very uncommon. We very rarely see red flags in Formula One. We've we've seen three in the last two races. It seems to be something with the Italian air or the Italian tracks that seems to create red flag situations. But we had another one, and. Everybody went into the pits. But this is kind of where a bit more of the chaos ensued. It, not necessarily in a destructive way, but um, just looking through the field, this is where it started to shift up the order. Because by then, Daniel Ricciardo looked like he was uh, in a good position to finish in the top three. Yeah, he was. And uh, Alex Albon obviously didn't really look like he had too much to answer with. And uh, what happened was, with the red flag situation, everyone had a fresh change of tyres, a little bit of a shuffle of the order... But what it ended up doing was creating another restart, and this time the roles were reversed. Lewis Hamilton was ahead of Valtteri Bottas on the grid, and we expected Bottas to really challenge Lewis into Turn 1, and unfortunately, Bottas got a poor getaway. Not only did he not get past Lewis, but Ricardo in the Renault overtook him temporarily to take second place, and that completely ruined Valtteri's race towards the end of it. Of course, Valtteri did get past Ricardo again to take second place, but he just had nothing to respond to Lewis Hamilton or if he did try to catch Lewis, Lewis always had that extra time in his pocket to use as and when he needed to.
1: Well, yeah, um, in that last stint, we'll, we'll call them stints <clears> given there were like two uh, two big breaks. In that last stint, again, it just, this just comes to show the level of dominance Mercedes have. Um, They were both, they just, they run away at the front and they were just... um basically having like a little duel it's almost like a little game i've been trying to get fastest lap one would have a go belt went fastest and then loose had a go and he got fastest lap himself at the end so that was a story of the third part when it comes to the mercs but um but the other main story comes from that last stint was seeing uh alex albon get the jump on danny ricciardo's um as happy as I am for Albon to get his first podium, given the, the tough times been going through, I was gutted to see Daniel miss out on that podium, mate. I really was.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Although it was great for Alex Albon, but um, I'm just looking at the time, and I think it's a good opportunity to wrap this up. But as was, obviously, uh, for part one at least, and uh, we'll come back for part two to discuss some of the other drivers. But of course, at the end of the race, it just ended up that way, and Mercedes getting another one-two uh, for the season. It just seems that... This dominance is going to roll on and roll on for this Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton once again getting his race win and his 90th of his career. So very, very close to equaling Schumacher's race wins and of course on the verge of equaling his championship record of seven world titles. But we will talk a bit more about this Magella race and a few other bits of news in the paddock as well for this week in part two. So make sure to join us for that and we will see you in just a minute. So, welcome back to part two of the DNF1 F1 podcast. So, of course, in part one, we were talking about the race and, once again, another dominant performance for Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton, despite Valtteri Bottas' best efforts. When it mattered most, he just couldn't seem to be able to get the right getaway and it allowed Lewis to comfortably take home what was his 90th win of his career, which incredible feats he's making. It just doesn't seem to be ending any time soon. It's half to. the... Sort of wonder how far he can go or how many he can certainly get. Definitely looks like the first man to be able to break the 100 win mark as well. Certainly on the cusp for that. So moving on to the rest of the field. Of course the first thing we want to talk about is who joined them on the podium. And that was Alex Albon. His first podium in Formula 1. It's come at long last. It just seemed that after the way his season has gone this year. Of course what transpired at the uh, end of last season where he looked like he was going to get a podium in Brazil and he had that collision with Hamilton which then ruined that chance for him and then once again him and Lewis had collided again in the Austrian race where he looked like he might have been able to win that race but um, he ended up missing out on the podium once again. How great must this be for Alex Albon, Courtney given the stresses he's had obviously as we said missing out on two podiums and how difficult his season has been thus far with plenty of talk over his future Red Bull how relieved must Alex finally be to get onto the podium at long last?
1: Well, yeah, I expected him to be like, hyped up. You know what you usually get when you get the like, driver getting the first podium on the first win, screaming into the radio, jumping around. But he just seemed like, like a, a relieved man. It was almost like, you know, like when you come home after a rough day at work and you you plop down on the sofa for the first time and you just smell just a big sigh of relief that it's finally done. Mm. Yeah. That it seems that was the demeanour that he gave off when <laughs> he was on the um when he was on the podium. So I can imagine why it is a big relief for him. You know, is probably the perfect way for him to bounce back after what happened last week with Gasly 'cause been we know there'd have been a lot of talk about Gadsley getting any um getting his red ball seat back. So, in a way, with a little bit of luck along the way, Albon's been able to punch back. So, yeah, I think this race has come at the perfect time for him.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was a, definitely an interesting race for Albon. It wasn't the easiest one to manage because of all the restarts and everything else that had to go on, similar to what we had last week to some degree. But this was a race where he qualified very well. His best qualifying, I believe, of his career in four, top four alongside his team at Max Verstappen. And... He looked like he had the pace to potentially challenge for the podium, but of course it would require something to happen to one of the top three. Of course, his teammate went out in the first lap after a poor start and uh, got taken out. So it presented a great opportunity for Alex to really take advantage of the performance of that Red Bull and how he was driving around this circuit. And it seemed to me that this is one of the better performances from Alex Albon in his career. Sorry if you've heard my phone in the background. That's my brother texting me there, so... I have to ignore that for the time being. Um, nothing important, of course. But with Alex, yeah, one of his better performances I've seen in the Red Bull. When he looked a lot more comfortable. We didn't really panic either. And of course, when the opportunity presented itself towards the end of the race to make that overtake on Daniel Ricciardo, he went round the outside into Turn One and Turn One in Mugello. It's it's very much an off-camber corner where it's a good if you get a good run around the outside. There's a lot more traction there, and it opens itself up where you get the inside into Turn Two really nicely, so in a way it really benefited, it was a great overtake on Daniel Ricciardo, of all people a yeah, man I that, with that. Uh, he, that left Red Bull a few years ago and um, so I'm pretty sure the Red Bull boys, or Christian Horner would have been very pleased with that particular overtake, and uh, it, it's as, as I said, as you mentioned Courtney, a sigh of relief from Alex Albon, definitely needed this podium, and hopefully for his sake, on his future, whether Red Bull will keep him on, or whether the move in back to Alpha or what happens. He really needed this for his confidence because I feel Alex in the past has driven really, really well and delivered some really solid performances. But unfortunately for him, things have gone against him or he's had bad luck and it's really compromised or dented his confidence in other races. And he's finally been able to get a result today, which hopefully will spur him on to really unleash that level of performance that we both know he can do on a regular basis and try and see if he can challenge his teammate and perhaps the Mercedes a lot more often than he currently is doing.
1: I mean I'm 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 happy that he's got this podium. I really am, but I don't know, I, I still look at that Red Bull seat and I do feel that there needs to be someone else that can challenge Max or help Max challenge Mercedes more into the future. But I don't want to be too negative, let's let's focus on now and he'd and he done well given the circumstances he did well I thought the overtake on, on Daniel Ricciardo was was pretty good he said he went around the outside it was a, my F1 nerd inside of me just made that that move was satisfying shall we say the way mm. he just swept around the the outside and completed the move, it was um, it was good Not, and i pleased for him because it must be it must be mentally draining driving for a big team with all that pressure on you Like I'm sure like Valtteri's feeling the same thing right now, but I'm, I'm pleased for him and and, and and let's hope you know for for the sake of the rest of the season let's hope that he can get a little bit closer to Max because it was good seeing him start in um, in fourth so he yeah, had the Red Bull three and four and I, and I thought in normal circumstances that would have given Mercedes more of a headache and I think it could well have if it hadn't have kicked off the way it did at the start but he needs to be doing this more often and I think that's what Lewis touched on in um, in an interview which caused a bit of offence.
0: From Red Bull, yeah, uh,
1: yeah, they they need that. They they need somebody. They need somebody that can regularly challenge Max and push Red Bull forward. And let's hope that this result gives them the confidence. And and to the extent prove me wrong, I'm sure he cares about that. But prove the um the doubt was wrong, and kickstart and have a strong end to the season.
0: We we'll certainly hope so. And you're absolutely right. Red Bull have not really had the opportunity to challenge Mercedes with two cars rather than just the one Max Verstappen that they've had for a long time. And this yeah. was the first time we thought we might see that. Of course, Max got took out early on, so that kind of really prevented that. But otherwise, Alex drove a very good race, uh, made his moves at the right time and was very much rewarded with a podium uh, that he very much thoroughly earned today. So congratulations to him on that. Hopefully many more to from him for the rest of the season. Now, of course, with Alex Albon's delight comes the despair from the Renault team and Daniel Ricciardo in particular, who looked before the final red flag to have that third place nailed on. There was a time when, as we said, he got up into second temporarily but, once again Renault denied a podium in the Turbo Hybrid year. They've not got a podium since the Malaysian Grand Prix in 2011 and they've been getting very very, very close. Tantalisingly close, if you like, to getting that podium position and I think another added incentive, I suppose, for Daniel Ricciardo is obviously the uh, rumour around the paddock is that Cyril Abitabal, the Renault team principal, has promised that if Daniel gets a podium in this Renault car, he would personally get a tattoo on his body of Daniel's choosing. Now, I don't know about you, Courtney, but knowing what we know about Daniel Ricciardo and the designs of his crash helmets and the character he is, I'm pretty certain that tattoo would definitely be very much a spicy one indeed. I mean, for those of you that probably haven't seen this, I don't know about you, Courtney, but have you ever watched the US version of The Office...
1: I haven't, no, so you're going to have to explain
0: this one. So, basically, for those of you that have, first of all, Fantastic Show. Um, I'm not really usually a fan of US, of uh, American remakes of British uh, comedy shows, particularly as this was a remake of the um, original Office series in the UK that Ricky Gervais created. But this is the one obviously starring Steve Carell. Um, and in the, in this particular episode, the uh, manager of the branch, under Mifflin, Andy... Uh, he promised he, he wants to get his staff motivated to do more work and produce better sales, so he rewards them with a point system, and one of which uh, has the uh, end result being Andy would promise to get a tattoo on his re- on his derriere, if you like, uh, and the team would have to choose which one he would get, and they achieved this in a day. It was ridiculously hilarious. They all just started working together really hard, got it in a day, and he got a very awful tattoo design. Obviously, it's TV, so it wasn't real, but. It was hilarious, nonetheless. And it kind of reminded me of that, thinking that Cyril Ibiza, even though he wants them to do well, and it's the incentive for runner to do well, secretly in the back of his mind, is sweating on it, thinking, oh God, if Daniel gets a podium today, what is he going to do to my body? What is he going to have tattooed on me? And uh, that sort oh. of joke. But I'm pretty sure Cyr- Cyril was always a good sport about it. He'd say that, you know, I'd be very happy if Daniel does that so I can have that. But um, thoroughly disappointing, considering that, Renault and Ricardo drove a very good race and looked like they may have been able to finally get their maiden podium in the turbo hybrid era. But alas, uh, the red flag came out, bunched the field up and allowed Alex Albon on fresh tyres to get behind Ricardo, make that overtake and take that third place just at the death. So, I mean, ricardo has been on the podium plenty of times. I'm sure this one would probably have been up there for him uh, with his time at Renault is it fair to say that Renault of the last couple of races seem to be the team making the most gains? They seem to be moving up the order very, very quickly. Does this mean that there are signs to be more positive for the Renault team about uh, the rules changes and that perhaps they may be on top of things in the future and may be able to challenge for race wins again?
1: Well, it does seem that's the um, direction they're certainly aiming to go in. I mean, the the first real impressive performance I saw from them in recent times was Spa, and I and I, I thought I might be the track specific. But we've gone to three different, you know, three different circuits that have slightly different characteristics, and they've been strong in all three. So the consistency shows they should be optimistic. They've got um, they're making a change in um, in name, aren't they? Going is it called Al- Alpine Racing?
0: We're spelled oh, Alpine, what? but it's pronounced Alpine. Oh, Alpine, yeah, yeah. I'm not
1: French, no. It's, <laughs> I've said it in a very common English way.
0: We're still going to be calling it Alpine, um, even though it's <laughs> technically Alpine racing because it's French. So, uh, you know, may we, may we. But,
1: uh... <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, I think they're, they're showing ambition. They've brought, they've brought back um, Fernando, regardless of uh, some of his misdemeanours in the past. He is still a massive name in the sport, which will bring in sponsorship and revenue. And they must be looking at 2022 with... Um, plenty of optimism so yeah it's certainly the start of some kind of um well some kind of rejuvenation for Renault because it's last season or so they're right towards the back so mm. I like I like I like to see the big manufacturers challenging at the front I'm a, I'm a bit of a purist in that sense, so I hope this continues
0: yeah I hope so too I mean of course they'll be losing Ricardo to McLaren next season to partner Lando Norris which obviously will be a blow but they will be getting Fernando back so it's almost a bit of a bittersweet thing so Renault, as I said, they're going from strength to strength, so this is only a good thing for them. And even though they didn't get the podium today, you almost feel that if they keep plugging away and doing what they're doing, it may come sooner rather than later. This does seem to be the season where people that are plugging away and working hard are rewarded more often than not. Speaking of people and drivers that are plugging away and being rewarded, we'll move on to someone who is plugging away and, oh, it's so painful how he has been—he he's missed out once again on a points finish and that is George Russell who finished in 11th place and obviously you can tell by my, uh, well, abysmal reaction really of the distress but um, I really, really feel for George. My heart goes out to him because today seemed to be the day after 30 Grand Prix that he's been involved in Formula 1. George has always shown hallmarks of a potential race winner and champion in the future and... Always seems for one reason or another to not be able to get a championship point, and today seemed to be the day where that was going to end. He was running a fantastic race, made some really good overtakes, was running in ninth uh, on merit, and the final red flag came out. And then, of course, that call allowed the likes of Grosjean and Raikkonen to go unlap themselves, get a free pit stop, and uh, Kimmy got a brilliant start to get up into eighth despite the five second penalty and George Russell likewise did not get a good start got bogged down behind the Ferraris uh, of all teams you think bogged down behind the Ferraris you didn't think I'd say that too often but it caused George to finish in 11th place narrowly missing out on a that elusive championship point that just seems to be keeping away from him I mean what more does George Russell have to do? to win a World Championship point. I mean, we're talking about a Championship point here. It's almost as if we talk about George, the way he drives as if he's missing out on race wins and World Championships. What more has George got to do?
1: I just... I, I don't want to say I feel sorry for the guy because I'm, I'm immensely jealous of him. He's a former 1 driver. But he has shown, particularly in his F2 season, that he can not only match, but can outperform the likes of Alex Albon and Lando Norris. He, he must be seeing them, you know, you know, on the podium, whilst he's struggling to get a point. It's is, we know that F1 isn't just down to driver ability. We know that he's been in the worst car, but it must be frustrating for him. And you know, opportunities to go to faster teams hasn't really come his way, and he is a, the the guy in F1 turns is definitely due a break.
0: Yeah, it just seemed that today was going to be the day. All the, Everything just seemed to be going his way. He drove really, really well. Took advantage of the scenario that he was in. And he had a lot of pace. He made some good overtakes as well. He was battling away very, very well. But he just did not have the pace. He, he really tried. I, I enjoyed watching him trying to hunt down Sebastian Vettel in the Ferrari. And you could see the on-boards. George was throwing that car eight ways from Sunday. Picking all the right spots. Literally committing his life and everything on top of that, just to catch the Ferrari, get into the DRS and pass him, despite Vettel really struggling. It, it was really handling terribly, that Ferrari. And uh, George, for whatever reason, just did not have the speed in the car to get that move done. It was so gut-wrenchingly close. And I feel sorry for him, but knowing what we know about George, he's a guy of a strong mental character. 30 races in a row now, he's out-qualified his teammate. I mean, not even Lewis Hamilton can oh. boast a record like that. So that is an incredible statistic from George Russell and he has been improving his racecraft. I think one thing I've noted from George in Formula One is that his racecraft has been a bit uh, lacking I suppose compared to what we expect from him but in recent races he's definitely stepped up and I really hope more opportunities like this come for George but as I said before in last week's episode I think the real problem for George is there isn't really a stopgap move for him into the Mercedes seat where he can go into a kind of like a halfway house team if you like under the Mercedes programme. Naturally, you'd think that'd be racing point, which would be Aston Martin, but I'm pretty certain now that we know what that lineup is going to be for next season, so it doesn't yeah. really exist for him. He has to just jump all the way into the Mercedes, and until things change fundamentally there, I just can't see that happening uh, at least until 2021, if it happens in... Tw- sorry, 2022, I should say, if it happens then at all. So hopefully for George, he will get over the line, but it, once again... I I I mean he couldn't have been any he couldn't have done any more to be honest to win a world championship point today so hopefully he will get that and I'm pretty sure he will celebrate it like a world championship when he eventually does do it he's too good to not be doing one well in formula 1 so uh all the best for him and of course the williams team in their first race with Dorals and Capital they would have loved that uh this week but of course talking of driver changes we should uh, move on to that briefly so big news coming out earlier on in this week Sebastian Vettel's future Finally secured in Formula 1 Sebastian will be staying in Formula 1 beyond the season he is not retiring and he is joining the Racing Point team in 2021 which of course will be rebranded as Aston Martin now his teammate has not been confirmed but we are pretty confident that it's going to be Lance Stroll as Sergio Perez also announced briefly before Sebastian Vettel was confirmed that he will be leaving the Racing Point team at the end of the season uh obviously terminating his contract a year earlier than its expiry date. First things first, Courtney, um are you delighted that Sebastian is staying in the sport? And of course if you are or not, do you think this is the right move uh for Sebastian and the Aston, what will be the Aston Martin team?
1: Well yeah, he's one of the um it's one of the biggest names in the well in this generation. You know, you don't you don't want to see them go out the back door. He doesn't He doesn't deserve that. Um, he's, he's contributed more than enough to the sport to go out in a respectful manner and yeah, you know what I'll do I think this will be a very good move for him he's not going to have that pressure to instantly be challenging for a championship he'll have time to you know, make his spot in the team create, you know, build his own team around him and I really do believe that this could give him the kind of reset that we've seen with Pierre Gasly at, um, at Alpha Tower. He's gone from. He's going to be going from an environment of Ferrari, which seems to have just gone plummeted, where he doesn't seem to feel valued, and I feel he will be given that. He will be given that, he'll be given that respect at, um, at Aston Martin, and yeah, I do. I, I feel this would be really good for him, and I think Aston Martin will be
0: another team to keep a big eye on in twenty twenty two. Hopefully, I think reset is the key word that you've mentioned there. It's a very important. Word in this context where the last year, perhaps the year and a half, for Sebastian Vettel at Ferrari has been less than savoury. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's won four world championships, over 50 Grand Prix. He is the third most successful driver uh, in the modern Formula One era. Um, only Hamilton and Schumacher really have won more. Of course, Fangio has won one more world championship than Sebastian Vettel, but when you look at the statistics, Arguably only Lewis and Schumacher have done more. But we're talking about a guy that's achieved all these things, was dominant for the early part of the 2010s, 10 years ago, and still has a lot to offer to Formula One. As I said, he's only 32, I believe. And, you know, people have been talking about will he stay, will he go... From what we know about Sebastian, he's not the sort of person that just wants to walk away in Formula 1. But at the same time, he always wanted to have a project where he can be involved in and be happy to be a part of. He just didn't want to languish at the back of the field. I mean, he's getting a taste of that now in the Ferrari. And that's certainly not something he wants to be doing for the next three or four years. Of course, we don't know how long his contract is going to run until. But this is a project at Aston Martin that we feel is going to be a very positive one for the team and for Vettel himself. It just seems they have all the ingredients there. They have the financial backing. Obviously, the rule changes that are going to come into effect in 2022. We have the budget caps. They've got the new facilities. They've got the new simulator uh, uh, at Brackley near Mercedes. Everything seems to be falling into a place where Aston Martin is going to become a powerhouse in Formula 1. And they've basically put their faith in Sebastian Vettel to be the main protagonist for This uh, rise in the sport to challenge the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, uh, McLaren, Red Bull, Alpine as it will be. Uh, I'm never going to get used to that name. But still, you know, this is what they need to be doing. And I think as much as we love Sergio Perez and how much he is offered. And of course, we should not forget Sergio Perez, single-handedly with his sponsorship, uh, kept Racing Point going when it was Force India. That period where he kept it going Uh, kept people in jobs in order for them to secure this uh, takeover from the consortium led by Lawrence Stroll a few years back to keep the team going. That should not be forgotten. And Sergio has definitely been very, very quick, although he's had difficulties this season where Lance has been very good as a teammate. Uh, He's obviously suffered from COVID. Uh, We had to take those two races off. So for Perez, do I think he will be leaving the sport at the end of the season? I don't think he will. I think there will be an opportunity somewhere, but will it be one that will entice him to stay? There are going to be other projects and other series, maybe IndyCar or something like that. I think the McLaren IndyCar program uh, did say they'd be interested in taking Perez on if he wanted to, which may be an interesting move, given he's obviously being Mexican, being a lot closer to home racing in the American series. But it's a move I think we knew was probably going to happen for some time. It just seemed on the cards, and it benefits everybody Involved. It benefits Aston Martin, it benefits Sebastian Vettel. And I think, as we saw before, the, how difficult it was at Ferrari towards the end of his time there and how the car was no longer suited to his style of driving. I mean, you and I have said before, Courtney, in previous episodes that Sebastian Vettel in the right car that's suited to his driving style and everything catered to his needs where well, all he has to do is drive the car is a formidable yeah. opponent for anybody in the field and I think that's something we've not seen for the best part of a year and a half now Ferrari where that's kind of gone away and it's shifted in Charles, Charles Leclerc's direction, at least not the car has anyway and that's why we're seeing Sebastian more than just languish behind Charles at most circuits he's really really struggling so I'm really happy Sebastian is staying and I'm really happy he's going to be shrouded in an environment that's really looks like they've got everything they need to get the best out of him in the, the next couple of years Yeah, I'm
1: just hopeful. Yeah, sorry, mate. I am. I'm just hopeful that this does work out because you do. You want to be. You want to be seeing the big names like Vettel, um, Lewis, Max Verstappen. You want to. You want to be seeing and 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 Charles. Let's not forget Charles because I consider him as one of the big guys now. You want to be seeing them all up the front, tussling for the for the for the big wins and the big and the big points finishes. You don't, you don't want to. It's funny to start with when you see like one of the rivals of your favourite driver struggling. It's, it's funny to start with, but it just gets to the point where it's genuinely sad. Hmm. So you know, you want to be, you want to be seeing a driver of his caliber up at the top because he, he's he's wasted where he is at the moment.
0: Yeah, you're right, and uh, obviously we wish him well. And uh, this is an exciting move for them, but of course we will be discussing. What we think is going to be happening in the driver market, because we're obviously coming to that period now where some seats have not been confirmed, some opportunities available, lots of things that can be happening. But we'll be discussing that next week's episode, because this one is nearly an hour long, and uh, we haven't got time. We, we want to give a f- we do like the talk. We want to give a full um, analysis of what we feel in the driver market. So we're going to be covering that in next week's episode. Obviously, we don't have a race next weekend. The Soshi race in Russia will be two weeks time on the weekend of the 27th of september so we will be discussing the preview for that race next week as well as our thoughts on the driver market as well so the final part of this podcast now is uh this weekend was the celebration of the 1000th race for formula one's oldest and most successful team scuderia ferrari now of course you guys listening on this podcast for a while now would know that I am a Ferrari fan, although I do try to remain impartial on this podcast. I think I've uh, criticised Ferrari more than praised them on this podcast, so I think I'm perfectly balanced in terms of my partiality for the time being, for as long as that continues. But as a reflection on Ferrari's um, impacts and, and uh, importance, how relevant they are to the sport and what they've achieved it's nothing short of incredible, in any way of putting it, uh, compared to any team in any sport. I mean, just looking at the stats, of course, one thousand races they've now competed in, fifteen world championships, sixteen constructors' titles, two hundred and thirty-eight wins, two hundred twenty-eight pole positions, five hundred and eighty-three podiums, and two hundred and fifty-five fastest laps. Eighty-four one-two finishes, which, believe it or not, Corny, is not the record. I believe Williams and McLaren. Uh, not Williams McLean, McLaren. Williams and Mercedes are actually tied for that. I might be wrong. I think Mercedes might have passed Williams on that one, but I think don't think Ferrari have the most one-two finishes. As I said, I might be wrong, guys. Do fact-check me on this if I am wrong. But looking at all of those stats, I mean, Ferrari practically there winning almost a quarter of the races that they have participated in. Looking at so many drivers of, of you know, so many successful world champions, you've got Ascari, Ferrari's first world champion. Of course, Fangio, uh, mentioned as well, Kimi Räikkönen, the most recent champion, Michael Schumacher, um, Alan Jones, Niki Lauda. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Jody Scheckter, of course, I forget, almost yeah. forget Jody Scheckter. So I mean, I'm not going to list all the Ferrari world champions of all day, but so many great drivers in the history of the Scuderia Ferrari. If you can, uh, as a non-Ferrari fan, s- try and summarize the significance of. Scuderia Ferrari to Formula One. I mean, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that Formula One, unlike other sports, needs Ferrari in the same way Ferrari need them. And the sport is, you know, as some people say in sports, uh, you know, no team is bigger than a sport or no player is bigger than a team. In Formula One, it just isn't the same with Ferrari. Whilst the sport would still go on, when you think of Formula One, you think of Ferrari around the world.
1: That's what you do. It's you can't have it's. It's a bit of a cliche. I said a lot, but I'm a firm believer in it, and that is, you can't have Formula One without Ferrari. You can't. They. Are, they are the by far the biggest team. Every single driver that comes in Formula One does dream of driving for Ferrari at some point. And um, I've I've said it. I think I think I say it every single time I talk about Ferrari. Every single time, people are probably sick of hearing me say. But they are a national institution. They are a big deal in Italy. And life would be very different for these people without Ferrari. Let's just put it that way.
0: Hmm. I mean, I I was watching a video on Twitter uh, earlier on today. And it was a three-minute video Ferrari put out to celebrate their 1,000th race. And loads of people all around the world, not just in Italy, talking about their passion for Ferrari. You know, you hear phrases and words, yesterday Ferrari, or... Uh, forza Ferrari, mente you know, all of those sorts of words you hear, Italian phrases, but they resonate with you as a Ferrari fan. And for me personally, growing up as a Ferrari fan in Formula One, to remember the days where, uh, when I first started watching the sport, obviously the likes of Jean Alesi, Gerhard Berger, Alain Prost driving for Ferrari, and obviously moving on to the days with Michael Schumacher, his successful period there, and how it meant. How, how it, what it means to people. And, you know, the Italian Grand Prix... I mean, last year's Italian Grand Prix, a great example, the noise and the passion that was felt all around the world, not just in Italy with the Tifosi, when Charles Leclerc won uh, for Ferrari at the Italian Grand Prix, the first Ferrari win at Monza since Fernando Alonso in 2010. It just means more to certain people than it could possibly mean to so many others in other sports. And that's not to say that, you know it's better that way but there's just something unique that sense of magic that you only really get in formula one uh, that's unique to ferrari and the impact that they have on the sport and so many people around the world and as i said a thousand races is an incredible achievement and we were talking about williams in last week's episode uh how many races they done over 700 and ferrari up to a thousand now Considering F1 has been around for 1,024 races, of course, Ferrari were involved from the very start in 1950. Enzo Ferrari founding the car manufacturer in 1927 and obviously going on to make the brand that, I mean, as soon as you think of Formula 1 or even road cars, one of the first names is going to be Ferrari for a lot of people. So congratulations to everyone involved there. And uh, here's to the next 1,000 for them. But of course, we do have to discuss, whilst we celebrate Ferrari, of course, it was a lovely tribute for Ferrari to celebrate their most successful driver, Michael Schumacher, who sadly uh, is you know is not with us at the moment, but he is still recovering from what we understand. Of course, it's very very private the news on his updates and his health. So we hope that he can recover to some level where we may see him at a Grand Prix soon in whatever capacity that may be. Uh, so you know, farewell wishes out to him. But there was a tribute today where his son Mick, who currently leads the uh, F2 Championship and is going along very very nicely in that series drove around in his father's F2004 Ferrari with his father's he race helmet. That. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, it made me miss the V10s a lot. It really did. Um, just hearing that car brought back many, many memories of uh, Michael being successful. So it was beautiful to see. And of course, seeing his son doing so well in Formula 2 this season. They may well end up on the Formula 1 grid for next season. But of course, we will discuss that. But going back to Ferrari, where they are right now, of course, we reminisce on the history and we just looked through some of the better moments uh, and what they've achieved in the sport. Where are the issues with Ferrari, Courtney? If we can sum this up in the last uh, five minutes or so of this episode, where are the main issues of Ferrari? Why are they in the position they're in? And what do they need to do to get it right going forward? Because at the moment, they seem to be stuck in a position where we know they're bringing updates to the next race in Soshi, because that was confirmed by Leclerc and Vettel, aero updates. But where are their problems and what do they need to do to go forward?
1: I think the problem, um, it would be ironic, I'm going to go deep into Ferrari here given it's supposed to be a celebration, but I feel that the problem with Ferrari is deep within this very culture. I've said it many times on here Ferrari is a pressure cooker environment and they do need, I feel they need to reform. And who knows, maybe with, this, maybe with these um, management changes they will. There's a pressure cooker environment. Still, it's, very, it's still very apparent. There's a pressure cooker environment at Ferrari, and it needs to change for them to get where they should be. And that is at the top. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be getting overtaken by Alfa Romeos, who are seen as a customer team. That that shouldn't be happening. Not not for not for a, a team the size of Ferrari. And it's all. It's just a, a combination of events chopping block mentality they have with management which I'm pleased on my sad. I'm pleased I've done it with not yet but that's what needs to change there's too much pressure you see a driver of Sebastian Vettel's calibre the climb, the way he has I feel that's a reflection of what he has been working with at Ferrari
0: uh, and what do you think they need to change to go forward in terms of their car
1: in terms of the car I mean they need to find a way around the um the engine agreement they come to, but they don't reckon that's going to happen until 2022. I feel that's a good move, though. I feel that they've actually stated the 2022 thing to take the pressure off them for the rest of this season and next gives them some time to kick-start. Maybe, maybe they are planning to start from, which I said, which is a very culture of the team. It gives them time to do that, which I, and I do think that's a good move for them because... Every season, you said it, we've we've both been sad about how big they They, they are. They expect to be challenging for the championship every season. And if they start slowly, there's massive pressure. So to take the pressure off the rest of this season and next season, I think is a great move. And it could bear good fruit for them going into 2022.
0: I certainly hope so. I mean, as a Ferrari fan, from what I've understood about this car, aerodynamically, it's not very efficient. I think that's the one thing we have to admit. I mean, the engine stuff aside, I mean... I've heard quotes from personnel at Ferrari in, in news reports and they usually say the same thing. They usually go and say, rival teams will kind of look at it and say, if you have around 60 to 70 brake horsepower more than everyone else based on their old engine they had last year, you base your aerodynamic concept on that, which is to cr- design a car with a bit more drag so that it can be faster in the corners because you've got the extra power to uh, go against that drag so it doesn't really affect you as much as it would do with a uh, engine they have now. And then you don't mind if you have inefficient downforce because you still have the engine to really get you out of trouble. Since Ferrari have lost that following the controversy they had with the agreement with the FAO, which to this day, we still don't know what they found. They obviously found something that Ferrari was doing wrong. And for some reason, I don't don't understand why these details were never really formally published because there's nothing for Ferrari to lose. There must be some sort of financial settlement or something. We're not going to get into that um, because that's pretty much old news now. Even though the other teams would still want clarity, it's not really a factor uh, that everyone's really worried about as much as it would have been if Ferrari was still winning races in 2020. So, you know, that that's the one side. But now that Ferrari have lost that performance cushion, they kind of have to swap over to the other extreme now. And it's not possible for them to achieve that in a short space of time. They are pretty much paying the price for developing a car in the wrong direction over the last two years. So this is why in recent races where Ferrari's slowly fallen down the order a bit more, other teams are developing, Ferrari haven't. Ferrari's aim now is to build a car that's more aerodynamically efficient um, with less drag and a bit more downforce. That is really, really hard to do in the time that they believe they may be able to do it. And we don't know if this will work. This may not work for them. And uh, I'm hoping that Ferrari will address these issues and what John Elkin has said about them moving in 2022, where their realistic, realistic targets are and they're able to de- de- develop a car that can challenge four race wins and world champs in 2022. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think next year might be a bit better for them with the, re- uh, the rule changes to reduce downforce by around 10% again. To sympathize a bit, it might help them out, but it's going to be a big ask for Ferrari to be challenging where they feel they should be at least until 2022. So, I think that's a good place to uh, end off this part of the episode. Of course, it is a celebration of Ferrari's 1000th race, so you know it's a fantastic occasion for them. Of course, not the result they'd want, finishing eighth and tenth position, but their first double points finish in quite a while, so that's something to celebrate. None the less, well, ish, I suppose. I mean, Charles Leclerc did perform well, but the car was always going to be going backwards despite an incredible qualifying performance. And he's going to be pivotal to Ferrari success in the years to come, but we'll discuss that in more depth. Until then, guys... It's been a bit longer this episode, so we do appreciate that. There's so much stuff to cover. We didn't anticipate this time last week we'd have an episode this long. But in next week's episode, it's not going to be as long, so do not worry. A bit more normal service will be resumed, but we'll be covering the driver market, what we think is going to be happening, any other news that comes up in the week or any changes, and, of course, a preview of the Russian Grand Prix in Sochi, which will be on the weekend of the 27th of September. Until then, guys, make sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are dnf one. Uh, underscore podcast and of course on instagram as well dnf1 underscore podcast and of course if you are listening to us on your favorite podcasting platform which is not youtube make sure to follow us on youtube as well subscribe to the channel dnf1 dash f1 podcast now i will apologize i know there was some other content for some of uh, my team series that i did promise you guys would be out soon been a bit of a delay on that because i've been a bit ill in the last couple of weeks so i do apologize for that delay but we will have some episodes ready for you guys to watch on the channel soon so i'm definitely looking forward to getting involved in that so i hope you guys are too but as i said before make sure to like share and subscribe to the channel it really does help us out a lot and we enjoy making this episode for you and uh well we're absolutely loving every moment of this i, I think it's fair to say courtney it's
1: going really well it is enjoyable we do like to waffle on, but, uh... I just think it shows how passionate we are about this sport and uh, we, uh, we've we got a long way to go but I feel that we're improving with time and, uh, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, the direction in which we're going, mate.
0: Yeah, and we've definitely got some new things that we're going to be introducing soon to you guys in the future so make sure to stay up to date with that as well and speaking of time i think we've taken up enough of your time guys we're almost breaching 70 (laughs) minutes now on this episode so i think we're going to wrap it up here so thank you very very much everyone for tuning into this week's episode and those of you that supported us from day one or if you've just joined us thank you for coming along on this journey we absolutely love having you here and we're hoping to make more great content so until then guys stay safe stay healthy and we will see you on the next dnf1 f1 podcast see you soon